You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, February 28, 2022. Since the onset of the pandemic, there has been a big increase in housing costs in many, many parts of the country. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Emily Hamilton, a senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University about affordable housing. More in today's feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzappel reports on environmental groups meeting with IU President Pamela Witten to discuss environmental goals for the university. But first, your daily headlines. The Monroe County Personnel Administration Committee met briefly on February 21st to discuss how the committee will proceed when meetings return in person. Council Administrator Kim Schell explained what the guidelines are for when the meetings resume in the building. As uh, we anticipate moving forward with uh, in-person meetings, uh, the uh, PAC group needs to approve uh, electronic attendance, and this allows uh, members um, to uh, attend um, electronically. Uh, but a quorum has to be present in person. But this also allows staff members to attend virtually as well as the public. So this is just in in anticipation of what's uh, ahead in March. Council Member Marty Hawk stated her preference for the committee meetings to be held at noon while staff members are already at work. Yes, I would like to suggest that since we plan to meet at noon when our staff should already be Uh, in the building uh, that we uh, make it clear that staff needs to be there as well as any department head that wants to make a presentation for a request. Um, I understand that there are some members of the uh, PAC that might have to be traveling from time to time and if they would like to be virtually if we're allowed to do that um, that would be my preference, as well as the public could listen in. I'm not so certain that we are required to accept uh, public comment from those that are not in attendance, but that would be up to the majority of how you want to do this. But I would like for us to continue to do it at noon and be able to uh, take care of county business without doing overtime for staff. The committee approved the electronic attendance policy for public meetings. The next Personnel Administration Committee will be held next month. The Bloomington Redevelopment Commission discussed the development of IU Health Bloomington Legacy Hospital site at the February 21st meeting. Project Manager Deb Kuntz gave an update on the site's redevelopment. So I think it's been some time since there's been an update on the hospital site redevelopment. Um, So we thought we would just um, go back just for a little bit uh, and talk through the sort of just an overview of the redevelopment. I know there's probably different updates that happen throughout the year. Um, There's obviously been a a big focus on the phase one East, which was always our plan. 
and uh, a little bit on the core building or uh, focus on the core building as well. But the core building update will come in the future. We're not quite ready for that. And then ultimately just summarize, uh, summarize the project review update that is in front of you. Um, so I uh, included in here just a recap of the master plan in terms of what the future development really looks like in terms of um, mid-rise, low-rise, you know, single-family dwellings, you know, what that sort of future state really looks like, because I think that's important to always keep the future in mind, especially as you're building new infrastructure at the beginning. Sometimes it's kind of hard to swallow, you know, making that kind of investment. But what this does is really gets you to your goal and your uh, emphasis to improve the affordable housing and give other housing opportunities, particular and other retail opportunities here in this redevelopment area. The redevelopment process is ongoing. The commission agreed to discuss more updates in the future. The next meeting will be held on March 7th. Environmental groups recently met with IU President Pamela Witten to discuss environmental goals. WFHB environmental news correspondent Nathaniel Weinsapple details the results of the meeting. A new development has arisen in the story WFHB has been following concerning the Sunrise Movement in Bloomington, which has been insisting that the IU Foundation divest from fossil fuels and reinvest into sustainable energy. Along with the IU Student Government and the Students for a Green New World, Sunrise met with IU President Pamela Winton and IU Foundation President J.T. Forbes on February 9th to discuss their goals. The meeting began with students, members, and supporters of the numerous organizations involved taking turns discussing the importance of sustainability on campus, the need to become carbon neutral, and the overall desire for a climate action plan. IU President Pamela Witten announced during the meeting that she was assigning Tom Morrison, the Vice President of Capital Planning and Facilities, to lead a, quote, planning group for our action plan, unquote. However, there were no strong details provided, and the only commitments made were to smaller changes such as driving electric cars. President Winton did not mention who would be members of the planning group, and there was no set timeline provided for the group to work towards. This left many students feeling frustrated as they saw no formal commitment to the development of an aggressive and long-term climate action plan. The Students for a Green New World organization was disappointed by the university's response, as they see a long-term climate action plan has only stepped forward with a chance of success. The organization also stated that the administrators during the meeting spent, quote, much of their time questioning student commitment, praising IU's previous climate action, and avoiding or redirecting students' questions, unquote. Members of the Sunrise Movement of Bloomington were also disappointed. Another moment of the meeting involved Sunrise asking IU Foundation President J.T. Forbes directly if there was an actual, tangible plan to divest from fossil fuels. His response was to falsely state that Sunrise Bloomington needed more collaboration between students, members of the public, and faculty before the IU Foundation considers divestment. This ignores the multiple resolutions passed since 2014 that have called for divestment, including a resolution in the IU student government that passed unanimously 
calling for IU to become carbon neutral by 2040. President Witten did not commit to any of the proposals by the environmental organizations. Students for a Green New World followed up the meeting by continuing their protests around campus and insisting that a new meeting be conducted to perhaps reach a different conclusion with the commitment of the university to create and implement a climate action plan. For now, it seems the protests and the movement will have more work to do. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Palestinian prisoners in Israeli detention have taken a series of actions against recent restrictions. Prisoner rights groups say that Israeli measures amount to collective punishment. All prisoners are refusing to step out of their cells for their allocated yard time since February 5th, when Israeli prison authorities decreased the time and number of prisoners allowed outside. This was in violation of previous agreements between detainees and the jail administration, the Palestinian Prisoner Society monitoring group said in a statement on Thursday. Prisoners have access to five to six hours in the yard, also called fora, every day, divided into morning and evening shifts, but the duration has been cut down by more than half. The prisoners' movement announced last week that Friday and Monday would be days of rage. On Friday, detainees refused to return to their rooms following prayers in the yard. The PPS said authorities sent in special forces as reinforcements for any escalations. Prisoners are also threatening to hold a one-day hunger strike on Monday. Inmates at a prison in Acapulco rioted after dozens of prisoners refused to be transferred to a federal jail, and 20 state police officers were injured trying to restore order, officials said on Monday. The riot occurred Sunday, just before the start of the Mexico Open Tennis Tournament, which is supposed to be a showcase for the Pacific Coast Resort. Authorities said some of the injured officers suffered broken bones and head wounds. A private prison company will run a new U.S. pilot program that would place hundreds of migrants caught crossing the U.S.-Mexico border under house arrest, an approach that critics say is an extension of for-profit detention. BI Incorporated, a subsidiary of the private prison company GEO Group, will operate the so-called Home Curfew Pilot Program, a DHS spokesperson and two U.S. officials said. Immigrants enrolled in the program would be confined to their place of residence in the United States for 12 hours a day and monitored electronically while waiting for their court hearings. Reuters and other outlets reported last week on the new program, which will generally require immigrants to remain in their residencies from 8 p.m. until 8 a.m. The Biden administration has greatly expanded so-called alternatives to detention, such as ankle bracelets and monitoring via mobile phone. 
The selection of a private prison company to run the home curfew pilot shows how companies could retain a strong foothold in the world of immigration enforcement. U.S. President Joe Biden, a Democrat, signed an executive order shortly after taking office in January 2021, phasing out private prison contracts for federal jails to, quote, reduce profit-based incentives to incarceration and tackle systemic racism. So far, however, Biden has failed to deliver on a campaign promise to do the same for immigration detention. There are currently 21,000 immigrants in federal detention facilities, up from 19,000 on September 30th, 2020, before Biden took office. Eddie Gibbs recently became the first formerly incarcerated member of the New York State Legislature, representing Manhattan's District D. Now, the Assemblyman has co-sponsored a bill that will allow incarcerated people to receive student financial aid in New York State. Bill A2322 will repeal the ban preventing incarcerated persons from receiving tuition assistance program funding. Gibbs himself earned his degree from Cayuga Community College while incarcerated. The 1995 law banning incarcerated New Yorkers from receiving financial aid has been devastating to them and the communities they return to upon their release. Assemblyman Gibbs is working with members of the Democratic Conference in both the Assembly and the Senate to ensure $5 million are passed to restore the tuition assistance program funding for incarcerated individuals, as Governor Hochul proposed in her upcoming spring budget. Gibbs said, Receiving a college degree in prison was a turning point in my life. It made me realize that a better path was available for me and gave me the knowledge and skills to take that path. The goal of prison should be rehabilitation, and New York State must ensure incarcerated people today have access to financial assistance to pursue a college education like I did. Immigration and Customs Enforcement detainees from New York City and Long Island are on a hunger strike in an upstate county jail over alleged poor conditions and mistreatment by guards. The protest began Wednesday among roughly 42 detainees in the Orange County Jail, which in part houses people picked up on immigration warrants under contract with ICE. The detainees say that the conditions are bad and meals are often one slice of bologna with a slice of bread or pasta and meat that causes stomach issues. Access to medical care has been limited. This is something that's been bubbling up for a long time over a whole host of issues, says Perry McAninch, a lawyer for the Legal Aid Society. The most immediate issue is treatment by the guards, who are saying racist things and have been abusive and aggressive. It's also hard for people there to access a doctor. In an interview, the Orange County Undersheriff, Kenneth Jones, sharply disputed the allegations. I wouldn't want you to interpret this as some sort of Gandhi thing. They are complaining about the food in jail, he told the news. We're an accredited jail. They've made a lot of allegations, some of them terrible, but none of them are true, he asserted. Jones added that any racist comments by the guards would be closely investigated. We have a rigid discipline system. Our officers, if they engaged in that behavior, they know they would be terminated, he said. McCannage countered that he saw officers throwing away commissary food on a video feed on Thursday. These experiences are certainly real and documented, he said. It may just be the nature of ICE detention and situating it in a penal institution. That is the issue. 
In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose of the Eco Media Center of Monroe County speaks with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Rose asks our guests about a range of issues, mainly focusing on affordable housing. We turn to our host for part one of an ongoing series on the local news. Today we're speaking with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where she received her PhD in economics. Her research focuses on urban economics and land use policy, and also housing affordability. Hamilton has authored numerous academic articles and policy papers, and her writings have appeared in USA Today, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times. She also contributes to the blog, Market Urbanism, and I am your host, Zero Rose. And we'll be speaking on issues generally, uh, but maybe we'll hopefully uh, touch a little bit anyway on some things happening in Bloomington that uh, I think she's a little bit aware of. Maybe you should start with describing market urbanism. Sure. Thanks, Zero. Thanks for having me on. It's great to talk with you. Market urbanism is the idea that many government restrictions have gotten in the way of building cities in the historical patterns that we know from places that were developed prior to current land use restrictions and zoning rules being in place. So if we look at um, many downtown areas across the U.S., those were often built prior to zoning restrictions such as single-family residential development that currently governs a lot of home building that goes on in the U.S. today. But if we go to a downtown area in many cities or to parts of the country like Boston or New York where there's a lot of old development that precedes these zoning rules, we see a mix of development oftentimes and denser development where we might see small residential structures next to commercial structures next to retail in a, a more walkable type of urbanism than what current zoning rules allow. Um, so market urbanism tries to bring together some of these goals that are often goals that progressives in the U.S. have, like walkability and affordability in housing markets, together with the idea that, that a capitalist system is often capable of delivering on these goals and that, in fact, neighborhoods built prior to a lot of today's land use restrictions can meet those progressive ideals better than more regulated um, development can today. Yeah, there's a lot of tensions that arise in these issues kind of between various sectors and it, in a way it could be seen to align a little bit with the political divides, which kind of essentially fall between rural and urban orientations overall. Have you dealt with a lot of those kind of cultural baggage issues? I know you've done some testifying on policy as at the federal and at state levels. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I often see housing as somewhat of a non 
partisan issue because there are Democrats who are, are very much in favor of the status quo of preserving institutions like single family only zoning in existing areas today. Similarly, there are Republicans who are, are very much in favor of the zoning status quo, but there are also Democrats and Republicans in favor of reform, particularly some Democratic politicians who are very concerned about housing affordability have been pursuing legislative solutions that are, are intended to improve that by allowing for denser housing to be built. Similarly, some Republican politicians who are very concerned about both affordability and sometimes other priorities like property rights can be in favor of reforming zoning solutions to allow for a more intensive use of property. And I know uh, environmental matters isn't quite your area of expertise, but has a little bit of that creeped in to the kind of urban planning scenario in terms of things like transportation, you know, as another component of, you know, where things are placed in, in zoning issues? Yeah, the way that cities are built has a huge effect on energy use and climate as a result. In general, denser development, more people sharing one roof, for example, is going to provide opportunities for energy efficiency in heating and cooling homes. And then on the transportation side, permitting denser development can go a long way to reducing transportation emissions, both because if people have the opportunity to live closer to job centers and they do drive to work and to other destinations where they're going, they'll often be driving shorter distances relative to what would be possible in a development pattern where uses are more segregated. And then also, it's a pattern of denser development, whether that's multifamily housing or small lot single family development, that makes transit work well or that makes walking or cycling for some trips an option. It's not just a buzzword, but one of the frameworks that's rolling around right now is the 15 minute city. Is that anywhere sort of in your models or in your? policy proposals that you back, which I, I guess it's somewhat of, you know, pockets of decentralized services available to sort of obviate some of that need for transportation beyond so far and make it that walkability that you mentioned? I would say yes and no. So the 15-minute city is an idea that I believe came to prominence from Mayor Hidalgo in Paris. And she's advocated this idea that people should be able to live in a location where they can meet their daily needs within 15 minutes commutes from their house. I think that when we're talking about commuting to work, that it's simply not possible many times to get people on a broad scale living within 15 minutes of their job, particularly when we're talking about every individual having a unique scenario. Perhaps we have a household with, you know, two, two adults and two kids, and they all have different schools and jobs to get to every day. The logistics of allowing 
for the type of development that would allow all those people to live within 15 minutes of their work and schools is kind of counter to what makes cities cities. Uh, cities are these big agglomerations of, of people and jobs and destinations that simply can't be traversed in, in 15 minutes. But if we're talking about allowing for neighborhood level walkability, I think we, we can achieve neighborhoods where people live within, say, a 15-minute walk, a coffee shop, a restaurant, a grocery store, a neighborhood bar, the dry cleaner, these sorts of daily errands that can be reached within 15 minutes on foot or perhaps by bike when commercial and residential uses are allowed to be built close to each other. And when residential density limits aren't preventing people from living in the type of density that makes that walkability possible. And I guess the sort of mixed use broadening of some zoning areas would, I guess, facilitate that a little bit, as in old Europe, where a lot of people lived over the store, you know, the family business situation, to bring it a little bit local, the Catalan facility here. They're giving them some tax abatements and there's been some talk of trying to get them to, as they develop a new zone near their plant, to include some housing for the expected addition to the burden of the city. And you have people that do follow jobs all over the country and move to where the job is. So I could see that in a way, you know, again, there's all the other members of the household to consider as well. But it seems that a little more thought would decrease some of these issues of all the pollution created by all the anticipated transportation to get around everywhere, especially as what seems to be happening here is probably what's happening about everywhere, is that prices are increasing in the core. People are being pushed further and further to the perimeter for cheap housing, which then makes them have to commute. So, I mean, is that is that your experience? Is that's kind of what's going on in most places? Yes, certainly since the onset of the pandemic, there has been a big increase in housing costs in many, many parts of the country, um, including parts of the country where housing has historically been relatively affordable. So we've seen some of the largest increases in housing costs in places like the Sun Belt, where people who previously may have been tied to a very high cost, perhaps cold part of the country for their work, who now have more of an option of remote work, they might be choosing warmer and less expensive housing markets now that that's an option to them, resulting in, in big house price increases. But it's, it's not just there. There's been a, an increase in house prices in parts of the country that have historically been more expensive as well. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. 
MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. KiteLine is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB.